Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. My name is Sean Brady. On the 1st of August 2007, at 6.05pm, the I-35W Highway Bridge in Minneapolis, Minnesota collapsed in the Mississippi River. We'll look at how a bridge could suddenly collapse after 40 years of service, and we'll ask if there was an issue with design, or was there abnormal bridge loading at the time of the failure, or was there both? So in the early afternoon of the 1st of August 2007, Progressive Contractors Incorporated, PCI, were preparing for a 160-metre-long concrete pavement pour on the southbound lanes of the I-35W Highway Bridge in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, seven previous pours have been completed since the project's commencement in June, and for this one, the eighth, 50 millimetres deep of existing concrete wearing course had been removed in preparation for a concrete pour planned for 7pm that evening. Now, as we know, this pour never took place. So at 6.05pm, a 300 metre long section of the main truss span collapsed. And a 140 metre section fell 33 metres into the river below. There was a total of 111 vehicles on the collapsed section. And only 17 of these were recovered. Now, tragically, 13 people lost their lives and 145 were injured. And what we're going to talk about today is you know, how this happened. And to answer that question, we need to go back to the beginning, to when the bridge was first constructed. So the I-35W bridge was open to traffic in 1967, so it was 40 years later when it collapsed. And this is a large bridge, so it's 580 metres long and it's made up of multiple spans. So it's, it's more than half a kilometre long and it carried eight lanes of traffic, four northbound, four southbound. It had 11 approach spans and then there was three thrust bands. And by 2004, it carried an average of about 141,000 vehicles daily. Now, there were a number of renovation and modification projects undertaken on the structure during its lifetime, and two of them increased the bridge's self-weight. Now, at the time of the collapse, the third set of works was underway, and this consisted of the replacement of a concrete wearing course. So what you do is there's this 50 millimeters thick layer of concrete on top of the concrete slab, which is designed to wear away under vehicles. And during the work, the contractor was removing this layer in sections and replacing it with new concrete that had just been mixed. So PCI's preparations included stockpiling gravel and sand on two of the bridge's southbound lanes. Now, they were doing this because the Minneapolis Department of Transport specification provided only a one-hour window between initial concrete mixing and final screeding. So this is what necessitates that the concrete be mixed as close to the placement site as possible, i.e. on top of the bridge. But there was a big problem with the size of this stockpile load on the bridge. So by 2.30pm that afternoon, there was 84 tonne of gravel, 90 tonne of sand and 90 tonne of construction vehicles, equipment and personnel. So all up, there was a total of 264 tonne spread over an area of approximately 300 square metres. And this was in place for the poor. And this wasn't the first time they'd done stockpiling, but the problem was the size of this particular load. Now, the investigation into the failure was undertaken by the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, and they released a report, and this podcast is largely based on the findings of that report. Now, when it came to the stockpiled load, the NTSB estimated that the loading from the stockpiled materials alone was equivalent to four times the design live load 
for the bridge. Now, the NTSB's estimate of this loading was based on eyewitness accounts, on post-incident vehicle positions, and really interestingly, and I find this fascinating, from a photograph that was taken by a passenger travelling on a commercial airliner as it flew over the bridge approximately 2 hours and 15 minutes before the collapse. Now, I've included a link in the show notes to an article which actually shows this photo and it's pretty incredible because you can see the location of all this stockpiled material on the bridge. Now this all begs the question doesn't it you know how was the contractor permitted to stockpile such a significant load of sand and gravel on the structure in the first place? Now on site the Minnesota Department of Transport actually provides construction inspectors. Now these inspectors were not trained engineers and as a result of that the Minnesota Department of Transport informed the NTSB that questions regarding stockpiling should have been directed in writing to the bridges project engineer. However the Minnesota Department of Transport had no policy that specifically required contractors to obtain such permission. Thus when preparing for the pour on the 23rd of July which you know the fay was on the 1st this is essentially the week before the contractor's foreman asked the Minnesota Department of Transport inspector if material could be staged on the span so this is one of these previous um, stockpilings and when and I'm going to quote from the the NTSB report and when quote the inspector evidenced no concern about the staging unquote the contractor's job foreman interpreted this as permission. So that's why during the preparations on the 1st of August, PCI, the contractor, again commenced stockpiling and permission was not obtained from Minnesota Department of Transport engineer. So we now know that the contractor did not obtain permission from the Minnesota Department of Transport. So subsequent to the fair, the NTSB actually investigated if the Minnesota Department of Transport would have granted approval for the stockpiling, hypothetically speaking, if such a request had been received. And the Minnesota Department of Transport stated that due to the loading being four times higher than the design live load, they would have been unlikely to have granted approval without first undertaking some form of engineering analysis. So, running on the hypothetical, the NTSB requested that the Minnesota Department of Transport undertake such analysis, and this load rating indicated that the actual stockpiling was satisfactory. So the NTSB therefore concluded, quote, had the Minnesota Department of Transport made a decision based solely on such analysis, it likely would have approved the stockpiling, end quote. So based on the internal procedures, Minnesota Department of Transport probably would have said it was okay. However, there was a big issue with this analysis. It only rated the bridge's main structural members and didn't consider the performance of gusset plates. So if you're unfamiliar with gusset plates, these are the flat steel plates that you connect members to to form a joint in a bridge and form a connection. Essentially flat steel plates that are either bolted or riveted into the the members that come in to that particular joint. The Minnesota Department of Transport only rated the bridge's main members and didn't consider the performance of these gusset plates. The problem here was the NTSB investigation would identify a number of the gusset plates as being the weak link in this design. And they were the weak link due to a design error in the structure. So not only do we have significant loading on the bridge at the day of the fair, we also have a design error in the structure. So what was this design error? Well, the NTSB found that eight of the connections in this bridge had gusset plates that did not comply with the relevant standards. Rather than being 25 millimeters thick as per the code, they were only 12 millimeters thick. 
Now, the NTSB would conclude that the cause of the failure was due to the combination of the increases in the bridges self-weight, which was as a result of those renovation works we spoke about. So this increase in, in self-weight in combination with the stockpiled materials on the 1st of August, also in combination with the design error on the gusset plates. So it needed these three things to fail. Now, conversely, the investigation also concluded that if the gusset plates had been designed correctly, the loaning would not have been sufficient cause the collapse. Now think about that for a moment. If the bridge had been designed correctly, it could have survived four times the design live load. And, and this really is a, is a good illustration of the level of conservatism that we build into our bridges. The bridge survived for 40 years despite the presence of a pretty serious design error. And the loading on the 1st of August was simply the enabling conditions necessary for the latent error to culminate in catastrophic failure. So now let's look at this design error a little further. How did this design error actually occur? And much more importantly, how did it go unnoticed for 40 years in a bridge of this scale? This is, this is a major piece of infrastructure. This is not a bridge that you simply design, build, and then ignore for 40 years. We know there was a review of the design done both internally by the, the engineering firm. We know there was design reviews by both the Minnesota Department of Transport and the Federal Highway Administration. And we know on two occasions during this bridge's life that it was subjected to further engineering analysis. It was, in effect, low-rated twice. And we also know that the bridge was being inspected. It was being inspected more regularly than best practice. Was there any evidence that there was a problem with these gusset plates? Now, the investigation would ultimately uncover a systematic breakdown in the very layers of protection that we as an engineering profession erect to prevent these sort of failures occurring. And we look at the design, we look at the design review, we look at these engineering analysis that was undertaken as part of the load ratings, and we look at the inspections. And we'll ask ourselves, how did each of these checks and balances fail to identify the presence of the design error? So let's first start and talk about design. Now, the NTSB was unable to track down the original design calculations for the critical gusset plates. However, they did find documents from the preliminary design stage, and they provided some insight into the gusset plate design. Now, these calculation sheets, which were unchecked, indicated that the gusset plate thickness was determined based only on the forces that were expected to pass across the splices between the cord members. Now, considering these forces alone, the gusset plates were actually sized appropriately at 12 mils. However, the correct design also required the consideration of shearing forces introduced into the gusset plates by the trusses, diagonals and vertical members. And that should have, once that was taken into account, resulted in thicker gusset plates up to, to 25 mils. But those forces weren't actually taken into account and that's why it wasn't designed appropriately. Now, the interesting thing is the NTSB found that while other gusset plates were thickened between the preliminary and the final design stages, they were bumped from the 12 to the 25, the final design thickness for the critical gusset plates were not increased. So they remained the same as that shown in the preliminary calculations. And this would lead the NTSB to conclude, quote, even though the bridge design firm knew how to correctly calculate the effects of stress in gusset plates, unquote, as evidenced by its correct design of other gusset plates, not only in this bridge, but in other structures, it, quote, failed to perform all necessary calculations for the main truss gusset plates of the I-35W bridge, resulting in some of the gusset plates having inadequate capacity, unquote. So there was a design error, a design stuff up. 
So now we move on to review. Why didn't the both internal and external reviews catch this design error? So the NTSB began by examining the designer's review procedures, and they identified that these procedures provided for an appropriate level of review, and they, they included for the review of the gusset plates calculations. However, the review did not have an explicit procedure for ensuring all such calculations were actually performed. And of course, we know that the, the plates weren't thickened up because all of the forces that were on them were not actually taken into account. And they remained in their tin form. So ultimately, the NTSB would conclude that such a review process was inadequate. So now let's turn to the external reviews. Now, a failure to check that gusset calculations were actually undertaken was also evident in the Minnesota Department of Transport and the Federal Highways reviews. So while the NTSB found that these authorities had provision for checking calculations, these provisions did not extend to checking gusset plate calculations. So not only did the authorities fail to identify the designer in these reviews, but the review processes were simply not equipped to do so because they didn't consider gusset plates. Well, think about that for a moment. The review processes don't consider critical elements of the structure. So that's the design looked at, and that's our reviews looked at. Now let's turn to these load ratings. Now the same trend continues with the load ratings which were undertaken in 1979 and 1998, and neither of these considered the gusset plates. And of course, this is just engineering analysis to, to work out how strong particular elements in the bridge are so you can make judgments as to the remediation works. And these analyses just simply didn't consider the gusset plates. Now, the NTSB concluded had ASHTO guidance, which is the guidance documents on this, included gusset plates and load ratings, there would have been multiple opportunities to detect the inadequate capacity of the gusset plates of the I-35 bridge deck truss. Now, interestingly, the SDSB found, and I would say disturbingly, found that the reason for this neglect was the apparent belief among bridge owners that gusset plates were always more conservatively designed than the members they connected. In other words, once the capacity of the members were deemed to be sufficient, it appears to have been assumed that the gusset plates also have sufficient capacity. And this was explain the lack of concern for checking the gusset plate capacity. Once the members beside them are okay, everyone simply assumed the gusset plates must be okay as well. So now we looked at design, we looked at review, we've looked at load ratings. Was there any physical evidence that some of these gusset plates were actually in distress? And this is where we turn to the question of inspections. So at the end of the day, opportunities to detect the error through inspections was also missed. So the NTSB concluded that the bridge was inspected in accordance with the National Bridge Inspection Standards. So it was inspected more regular than these standards actually required. However, the inspections would not have been expected to detect design errors because they focused on quantifying condition, particularly corrosion. The problem here was, while everyone was focusing on quantifying condition during these, uh, these inspections, there was actually visual evidence of an issue present. So in the case of this bridge, it was in the form of photographs of the underdesigned gusset plates. So in 1999 and 2003, you know, one of them was four years before the fair, the, the firm URS and the University of Minnesota were engaged to undertake strain measurements on the bridge. Now, both URS and the University of Minnesota took photographs of the bridge's main span truss. And when you look at these photos, you, they clearly show significant distortion in some of the underdesigned gusset plates. So not only do we have an underdesigned gusset plates, we also have evidence that these gusset plates are distressed. Now, based on these photographs, the NTSB estimated that this bowing in these gusset plates was in the order of 11 
to 25 millimetres. One of the ironies was one of the Minnesota Department of Transport Metro District Bridge Safety Inspection Engineers was aware of the Boeing. And when he talked to the NTSB investigators, he believed that it occurred during construction of the bridge. So consequently, the Boeing was not noted in any inspection report and the NTSB found no evidence of any analysis to determine why the distortion had occurred or to what extent it had affected the load-carrying capacity of the gusset plates. So pretty incredibly, we find that all the systems we assemble as engineers to prevent design errors actually culminating in structural collapse had failed us. The very protection system we'd assembled had let us down. So the, the, the I-35W bridge is a reminder of the role that human factors play in catastrophic failures. From a technical perspective alone, the failure could have been avoided. You know, the design of gusset plates was well understood, but it was not implemented correctly. And the risks involved in stockpiling, which were obvious in hindsight, fundamentally went unexamined. And as with most failures, there were numerous occasions when the potential for failure could have been identified, but such opportunities were missed or the warning signs were simply misinterpreted. (laughs) 